and welcome back to the Dice of Screaming podcast. Back with Vengeance. Oh, oh yeah. Nice. Yeah, we had a little bit uh, of a lapse in our last episode, so we're going to make up for it tonight. Oh, absolutely. And we're finally covering some material that uh, this has been on the docket for a while. We've been, you know, like, not, not to let the kimono, I'm just fluttering the kimono. It is not fully open. So, you know, nobody has to avert their eyes or cover the ears of children, because uh, the sound of the open kimono can, you know, it's not appropriate for minors. Oh. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, we have promised ourselves we would, we would be tackling this uh, in the new year, mm-hmm. and I'm just really pleased, because this, this is new-er product, not yeah. a brand new product, but oh. it's, it's something that I consider in the theme of outstanding output in gaming. So. Yeah, it definitely, uh, it's definitely a moment, but, uh, yeah, it's been uh, a little bit of a rough time around here. It's uh, a lot of uh, turmoil in our personal lives, as well as other things going on, but uh, we keep trying to provide you with some content, and uh, see that some of the other podcasts that Dave Albridge is doing quite well in his podcasting. Oh, but, most excellent. Yeah, and uh, Rossoth, the Sionic Platypus, has been putting out some good stuff as well, so... Uh, in the interim, where you're maybe waiting for us to come out with some stuff, check out those cats because they got it going on. Oh yeah, that, you know, take a little time over at uh, uh, do some reading at uh, They Might Be Gazebos. Mm. I read a lovely article there. Oh. Uh, it was very enjoyable. Yeah, there's been a lot of blogs out there too that uh, in this age of podcasts and all that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the art of reading is not dead. We're gamers. You know, reading is our bread and butter. So, you know, <laughs> uh, many of the excellent podcasts that are out there also have follow-up blogs that I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of good ones out there. So, yeah, check that one out. Expect no less from the flatulent half-ogre of gaming podcasts. Why does it have to be a half-ogre? <laughs> it's just terrible. Well, that actually ties in with our team tonight, so I think that's pretty cool. Um, all right, well, we've got a couple things to do. Uh, first of all, we got uh, coming up here um, a couple other uh, special podcasts. Uh, probably going to be doing another guest uh, star appearance here shortly. Ooh. Yeah, uh, probably should have actually invited Pat. Oh, it would be wonderful. For the uh, Star Trek one, yeah, but... Uh, Probably going to get with him and uh, see what's going on, as well as uh, I know. Shame on us. We were remiss because uh, that is a you know a true fan since the beginning. Yeah, you know um, it's different because I only saw it in syndication. It's too darn young. Oh yeah, I mean, good lord, <laughs> that happened before we were born. Yeah, uh, but it had carved out enough of a niche for itself that it was uh, significant and well known and important in our youth. So. Yeah, you know, by that point, it had spread virally, and you know, just had a lot of clout as a fandom, and it was one of the first fandoms to do so. Yeah, and um, we are going to do another um, music-centric uh, podcast, probably coming up here in the next two or three episodes. So stick around for that uh, with uh, passing of Neil Peart. Yeah, it's yeah. Peart, and it's not Peart, so forgive me. Ah, uh, it's a Canadian thing, you know. I mean, I don't get me started. I, I only had it a boot right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, we're gonna talk about that, and uh, 
some other things. Uh, we have some suggestions from some of our listeners, and uh, some of you folks have been letting me know, giving me heck on Twitter <laughs> about uh, where our podcast has been, so I appreciate that. Um, nonetheless, uh, we're going to turn to, real quick, get in some uh, paying the bills action on uh, doing some of our advertisements, and we'll be right back, so stick around. All right, and we're back. So thanks for sticking around. Uh, yeah, what we're, we're going to be doing tonight is we're going to cover Rise of the Rune Lords, Pathfinder's uh, first entry into their own adventure path. Um, yeah, this was not uh, generating material for other people. This was Paizo generating material for their own game uh, in the Pathfinder uh, verse. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of the previous efforts, as I understand it, uh, were originally, they were intended as product for other companies, and they were just a product maker. You know, they, yeah, they were, uh, Paizo kind of started out a little bit as an ad hoc organization to run uh, and publish uh, Dragon and Dungeon Magazine, and they ended up doing a really good job. But uh, one of the things they came up about mid-run through with Dungeon, which had always kind of been lagging a little bit behind, Dragon Magazine. Um, they start out with uh, the Shackled City, and this was their first kind of foray into this, uh, where it was a number of writers and artists were uh, collaborating on a central story of twelve episodes carried through a year at uh, Dungeon Magazine, and uh, subsequent linked articles in the Dragon. Kind of a, a holistic approach to putting to showing what the publishing arm of uh, Dungeons and Dragons could really do with development and story. Uh, having articles inside uh, Dragon Magazine able to showcase uh, some of the strengths of the campaign and also link into some of the adventure ideas, as well as uh, explore things like magic items and spells that would be unique and useful in this adventure path. And Shackled City was uh, there first, and uh, of course that was collected later into a compendium. Uh, then it was pretty successful, so they went on and did Age of Worms, which turned out to be pretty uh, wildly successful. Uh, really yes. uh, increased uh, their publication. Age of Worms was, you know, one of those 3.5 era moments mm -hmm. uh, that it generated an extremely popular, you know, mini campaign. Uh, and, well, and honestly, really a whole campaign. You know, you play your way through yep. it uh, painstakingly, but. Uh, those were the lead-ins. Those were they yeah. had already proven their chops. Yeah, and after that they had able a... to write and publish terrific campaign settings, modules, uh, adventure paths, as they called them. Yeah, and <clears throat> they also did uh, Savage Tide, which uh, featured you basically killing Demogorgon at the end, which was uh, well, is a daunting task. Um, <laughs> we'll leave it at that, but. Um, after three, um, Wizards of the Coast decided to uh, pull the license and switch to a digital online format for Dragon and Dungeon. So, that being what it was, Paizo was kind of left in the lurch a little bit. So, they decided to move forward and create their own game. Now, of course, we all know that we created the Pathfinder game. But, Rise of the Rune Lords was their first effort without having to kind of kind of a safety net of having a game system. They were using the 3.5 license at this point. The Pathfinder game had not fully been out. They were kind of working with it, but this was also kind of uh, was seeing what they could do. So they changed the format from a 12 
<coughs> issue sort of thing to um, initially bi-monthly release. Uh, six times a year, they would come out with a uh, adventure path uh, book, and you know it would have number of installments. But this was the first time that they were directly writing for themselves and also exploring a new campaign world with the world of Galarian and whatever. But it was easily transferable to any other campaign world, including oh, yeah. Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms. You know, rename a city uh, and you know fudge a few things here and there. Uh, you know the the background nations from which people came. Right. Uh, these are adjustments any DM could make uh, with a modicum of time and paperwork. Uh, not an insurmountable task. But uh, this represented their first outing in their own little playground. Uh, it was setting the stage for very much what was to come. Yeah, and it kind of comes with a background that um, sets up the idea of the Rune Lords. They were... Uh, Kind of very powerful wizards in the distant past, and uh, they had each a domain over not only just a school of magic, but an area of the earth as well. And they vied for each other, but uh, their magic was known as rune magic or sin magic by some standards. And rather than extolling the virtues of a certain ideal, this actually extolled the uh, vices as a strength. <laughs> So uh, it involved the Rune Lord of Greed, Karzog the Taker, the Rune Lord of Greed. Good name, too. Mm-hmm. And apparently he's been asleep for like 10,000 years. There's been numerous cataclysms that he was uh, kind of locked away. And portents have been arriving that he is to return. Or is uh, kind of alluding that the rise of the Rune Lords themselves... Is at hand, and yeah. he's one of the first to there come are, out. There are signs and portents. Now, we're not saying the seventh seal is broken, like right there in module one. No, okay, that's not the issue. But uh, you know, that's the world that people are living in, and with the the haunting suspicion that things are afoot and about to explode out of control. That some point soon there will be terrible crisis. We don't know when. We don't know where. But it's coming. Now, um, if you use the uh, Pathfinder uh, starter set, or beginner's box, excuse me, of the uh, uh, classic edition, uh, there's a dungeon called Blackfang's Dungeon, which provides a good entry point. And of course, the adventure truly begins at uh, a small village called Sandpoint. And Ostentiously, the uh, player characters are arriving there to attend a Swallowtail Festival, which is the symbol of Shaylin. So, love, beauty, happiness, all that is good in life. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of a thing that uh, everybody does uh, at this uh, town standpoint. So the adventurers are arriving there, and just as they're enjoying the festival and starting to learn a little bit of their surroundings, you might uh, be able to start get the players introduced and started. And if you use the Blackpink's dungeon sort of thing, it uh, it does provide a good basis for maybe a excursion to get uh, the group kind of field tested and kind of feel their way around each other as well as uh, get a grips on what their strengths and uh, the party composition is before you really throw that at them. But either way, uh, the Swallowtail Festival is interrupted by a bunch of goblins attacking. And of course, you get to see the <laughs> Paizo take on goblins, which is now a little bit of a trope. But, um, you know, little uh, singing pyromaniacs 
who hate horses and dogs. And are, you know, ludicrously incompetent uh, most of the time, uh, but have a kind of uh, low-end cunning and ferocity that carries them through. You know, that a, a large enough number of them can be very serious. Now, and of course in 3.5, uh, like most humanoid races, they're capable of leveling. Uh, so, <laughs> incompetent and ridiculous they may be, but <laughs> if they got a couple levels over the player characters, uh, a few goblins is actually a threat. And, you know, it sort of sets the, uh, the players on a path as establishing them as heroes that the people of Sandpoint can look to in these uncertain times. And so, that's kind of the starter. Now, uh, of course, with... Uh, the supplemental material that they uh, did in Dragon Magazine, they now just gave a player's guide, which kind of was a handout to give to players as they started the campaign to create their characters with, setting kind of the expectations of what and where the uh, campaign was going to take place and what it expected of the players themselves, and gave them a few uh, little tidbits and ad pieces of advice about creating characters, so not only we work together as a party, but also fit well into the intro of the setting. And for some, this has kind of been, uh, I think it's one of Paizo's strengths that they were able to finally not have to deal with a whole lot of different settings, but just deal in their own. Because in the previous stuff where they had to account for Eberron, Greyhawk, Faerun, of Grand Realms, and they had to really write outside of the scope of the beginning areas that so would fit into various other campaigns that were official. Yeah, the retconning of any given new material so that it could be used in a wide variety of settings. Uh, that You know, that is a bit of work. I mean, it's one thing for a DM to take existing material and shift a few gears, change a few names, and prep it for a second. But to write material knowing that you've got these limitations upon you uh, and to constantly edit, uh, like, oh, no, we can't do that. That's That's going to... You know, that's going to create a little continuity issue if they're using this campaign. This over here is going to create an issue if they're using that campaign. None of that. Uh, the, the folks at Paizo immediately set out, and it was not just a chance to strut their stuff and publish their first, you know, flying solo modules. It was also a chance to highlight areas and facets of their verse, their campaign setting that were extremely unique, much like the goblins. You know, very different from the traditional D&D &D goblin. Yeah, and while goblins uh, feature prominently in the first adventure, um, they quickly, of course, fade away, but there's a number of places that uh, the goblins become important, and there's a lot of additional material written as if the players don't want to take some of the uh, plot points offered in the adventure path that you can write your own or develop your own material depending on what the players want to do. So this was also a good point for them was, you know, this was a very loosey-goosey type of uh, campaign setting to start off with because not a lot was known about it. There wasn't a lot of canonical lore. You didn't have the actually people sitting there at the sidelines pushing up their glasses and going, well, actually the Rune Lords wouldn't fit well in Greyhawk because there was no, you know, yeah, okay, so you're right. But, you know, you could just scrub off the name of Rune Lords and just put another uh, ancient order of magicians who use dark and forbidden magics. And uh, this campaign does, when it starts out, you don't really get a feel 
or uh, who Karzog the Mighty is, or the Caesar. Yeah, you're not really inundated in this material right from the onset. Uh, it's a little bit of background information. You're not even sure that it's important at that stage. Mm -hmm. uh, now, mind you, that's from the perspective of a player cracking this open for the first time. Uh, with the DM giving them the appropriate level of cues. Uh, people who have read all of the material before play will obviously understand just how relevant some of this is. But for the novice player uh, presented this by a DM, it was a, you know, not... You were not left with the impression that, like, our grand destiny awaits. Aha! That is the name. Someday we will battle this. No, it was not like that at all. It was very subtle. Yeah, there's there's inferences. Um, like in uh, Black Wing's dungeon, there's a statue of Karzog that is seen. But no one really, you know, he's, his visage and his likeness have not been seen in, uh, what, ten millennia. Yeah, you know? so, you know. Nobody in a room. Who's that guy? It's just some guy pointing <laughs> off in the distance. <laughs> yeah, towards the nearest loot pile. Oh, no. Uh, worth mentioning, uh, right from the outset... Uh, the DM notation that in older D&D modules would have been uh, laid aside after the little boxed text that, uh, you know, would, was material for you to just state. D&D uh, &D did a great kindness to DMs mm -hmm. everywhere yeah. by having a little square that this is how you describe the room uh, so that the players don't have too much information. Then down below, they filled in the blanks with the information that the Dungeon Master would have to know. Now, Pathfinder, the folks at Paizo did something quite a bit different from that. Uh, they had very detailed notes, uh, and they tried, to the best of their ability, to prepare for the uh, very reasonable fact that players are not reasonable creatures. <laughs> and they will, they will hair off and do the most insane things that, you know, for no particular reason... Uh, chasing rabbits, you know. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland style, uh, when, you know, doom is afoot. Well, uh, they did a, what I consider a terrific job filling in as many blanks as possible for the DM. Uh, answering questions. What know, if the very, players go here? What if they ignore that? Very clear pictures of, like, NPCs' level of knowledge, level of usefulness, mm -hmm. level of hostility, level of involvement. You know, as much information was packed in, uh, in these, you know, each, uh, well, the original release was in six parts. Um, but they packed as much info into each one as they could. Yeah, and they made Sandpoint much like Apple Lane and RuneQuest and A Village of Homlet in yes. uh, AD&D. They Good made comparison. Uh, Sandpoint full of interesting NPCs that you could spend your time just adventuring with if that's what the players wanted to do. But eventually, a plot will be unveiled, whether by accident or by purpose, of a willful exploration of two lovers uh, having a, well, a Asmiar child who was much, uh, very upset at her early uh, of being raised in a community of somewhat sheltered folk. And they figured her being a celestial child would, you know, be a blessing and a boon to the local temple. And since the temple is kind of a less denominational, but slightly aligned to uh, 
Desna, one of the gods on uh, the Galarian universe, uh, a goddess of dreams. Um, she was much put upon by the people. They always wanted to, you know, have her sing a hymn to bless uh, a new house or a birth of a child. And she was just very upset with that. So she left very early, feigning her own death and uh, burning part of the church down. And, uh, Whoa. Yeah. Angry and, celestial. Yeah. Yeah. She uh, became quite uh, infuriated and uh, chose a different path than the one that was supposedly her destiny. But uh, she becomes involved with one of the... Uh, you were supposed to bring balance to the force. Uh, no, she didn't. No, no. And she ends up uh, courting favor with uh, Lamashtu, the demon goddess of monsters. And uh, she starts uh, finds an old forgotten dungeon, which is tied to the Rune Lords in a very peripheral way. But, you know, that's not what she's seeking. But that's how it gets the players is, is that she's also been having an affair with one of the sons of the prominent town uh, merchants. And... Uh, a glass smelter, as, as it were. But uh, anyway, they, uh, that's how you can involve the player characters nominally. But if the player characters decide to do something else, there's disappearances, there's goblins about, and other things that you can weave the players back into the story. Exactly. There are multiple incidents that take place independent of the player's actions. Like, these events will unfold at these times. And they may ignore one. Like, mm -hmm. okay, well, there was an incident. But I'm totally, like, into doing this right now, so we're not going to really pay attention to that. Uh, and then there are going to be other incidents, and more of them, until at last, literally, the town is clamoring, for the love of God, get on this! <laughs> yeah, and it, and it can be handled in different ways, you know? No, you, it can be done far more subtly than I Well, right, and right. if the players, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, this is uh, railroading, it's... Really not, and I think that a close examination shows that there's numerous ways to weave the story that is of these two star-crossed lovers uh, into uh, getting the players into the dungeon, which is uh, not far from the town, but is uh, you know it has a number of cultists of this very charismatic Asmiar, almost an anti-paladin in a way, um, very. Um, a dark cleric. A few of her followers, as well as a tribe of enthralled goblins. And a sinister bugbear ranger, which is no joke. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, for those who are not especially familiar with the 3.5 era, uh, you know, classed-leveled humanoids was one of the things that threw me for a loop early on. I had to readjust my entire style of gameplay uh, when dealing with humanoids. Because I became aware of the fact that they could be immensely dangerous. Just you know, way above their old weight class. Yeah, they could and really this, punch up. This was ultimately one of the facets of the 3.5 era system that I came to like as a DM. Did not enjoy it as much as a player. Because, <laughs> you know, taking a lot of punishment from that was not fun. But as a DM, as a, as a writing creator... Uh, having that flexibility was amazing. So, uh, you know, there were some pretty solid opponents, but if the players have had some time to pre-adventure uh, and they're moving further into this first module, uh, they find themselves usually, if they've got a team of four or better, capable of facing whatever's in front of them. 
Oh. Yeah, and there's a lot of um, a lot of buildup to this um, too. And uh, if you use your gaming skills well, you can really get the players well rooted into the town, the Sandpoint, which again compares well to uh, yeah, Hamlet, Hamlet, and other places. But no. uh, Nualia is the uh, Asmir cleric of Lamashtu, and is also a multi class as a fighter. But long story short, is that there's a, a couple dungeons that you can get the players up and scaled up to face her. Uh, yes, if you're dealing particularly with new players, uh, they have given, they have provided the wiggle room to have some prep time. Yep. You know, learn how to make the characters work, how to use your class skills and things like that. Uh, which, again, smart writing, okay? It may seem like fluff uh, content, but the point is obvious to me that it gives the DM the ability to get the players' feet wet, get them ready, get them a few bits of equipment, some money, some slightly better armor. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they may have started off with limitations, but this will give them that little buffer zone before they launch into some of the more complicated scenarios. Uh, so right from the get-go, the first module of The Rise of the Rune Lords, uh, got to give it an A+. Yeah, and uh, the Dungeon of Thistletop is one of my favorites out of the... Uh... Uh, many dungeons in Galarian. I like it because it's uh, it's about a, for about a second, third level. It's pretty tough, but uh, again, with a skilled party and uh, a little bit of help, you can make a good go of it, and uh, you know get to the climax of the module. Now, after that, um, of course, this is just the first one. Um, it sets the stage for a bigger campaign, and of course, you got to level up in D and D rather than just throwing them into the grist mill, but. There's small clues hidden throughout that start to hint at the involvement of this area was once inhabited by the Rune Lords. The Sahedron Star, there's a quasit um, that is aligned to them that, uh, of course, being a demon, it's kind of long, very <laughs> long-lived, uh, kind of has a little bit of knowledge of the stuff. Do not quote the old magic to me. I was there when it was born. Exactly. And... <laughs> No, very much not Aslan. So. <laughs> yep, and so you begin to push into uh, new territories to be explored in the second uh, series, which is, of course, the, the Skinsaw Skin Murders. Murders. Oh. Now, this is a, almost a classic haunted house, and this is them shifting gears and doing um, a lot of good work. And this, I mean, it's reminiscent of the... Uh, if somebody took... Scooby-Doo down a dark alley. Yeah. I mean, Scooby-Doo and Edgar Allan Poe had a, like illicit bender involving a great deal of like opium pipes. You know, just the, the gruesomeness uh, and like horror element here is wonderfully strong. Okay, it, it's not G-rated. And I, I would almost say it's like a good PG-13, okay? that That's kind of in the zone there. Uh, the DMs may wish, if they have younger players, to uh, curb some of the description or scenarios. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it is a murder cool. mystery uh, with a you know, good, dedicated bad guy in the end. Uh, a you know, good villain you can love to hate. Yeah, and it also transitions from the typical goblin bashing and dungeon exploring. It transitions to a little bit of wilderness encounter, especially the second part where there's gangs of ghouls or packs of ghouls roaming the countryside attacking isolated farmsteads and 
small uh, outposts. One of my favorite uh, scenarios, personally, mm -hmm. uh, one that, like, uh, before the publication of this, I had used something very similar with, uh, you know, a particular trade route plagued by them, and the players menaced, uh, you know, as they're attempting to initially set up camp in the, in the night, by more ghouls than they could easily handle and forced to take cover in a building and use the available cover and mm -hmm. limited points of entry to defend themselves. Very, like, and it's an homage, clearly, to Romero. Yeah. Night of the Living, or Night of the Dead, or Dawn of the Dead, or Day of the Dead. This of the Dead. The Dead. <clears throat> yeah. Way too many dead guys. The Dead. Lots of them. Lots of the Dead. And... <laughs> I enjoyed that scenario very much, and the Skinsaw Murders brings that to life, too. So it's very clear to me that there are other people with a great love for that scenario. Yeah, and over you know, Rizzo. this is kind of broken into two parts. The first one is a little bit of a murder mystery where you have to start investigating the disappearance and murder of several people throughout uh, the area. And it unfortunately involves one of the NPCs that the players may have started to rely upon early on, which, yeah. again... Old man Withers, oh no! <laughs> He's behind the skin saw cult. He's building an elf suit. Captain Lammers! Oh. Nice read, Velma. Yeah, and you know, spoiler <laughs> alert for you in there. Um, it, it is, if you do it well, you can really play this well for a lot of shock value. Even though he's kind of an elf cleric, you can still kind of... what What's going on here? <laughs> Why you got all these uh, tools? Don't worry, just go in the basement. What? Trust me, you need to go first. <laughs> Wait, but you have low light vision. While so. you're still fresh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, if you do it right, played well, um, yeah, the main protagonist in the first part of this can really be super sinister. And then, of course, it's a kind of tragedy. But uh, we're only going to cover the first three tonight. We're going to yeah, go end it up with the... We're uh, going to round up the third segment. Oh, because boy. It's, it's too good to, to leave out in this session. Yeah. The Hook Mountain Massacre. Nothing like Candy Mountain. Oh, no. 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 Uh, this is not the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Uh, this is not the Teddy Bear Picnic. <laughs> so, if like, the Skinsaw Murders was kind of an homage to uh, Romero's uh, The Night of the Walk, uh, Living Dead or whatever, The Night of the Dead, Day of the Dead. The Dead People. Romero's zombie stuff. Um, the Hook Mountain Massacre is pretty much uh, their homage to... Oh. Uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And boy, does it get horrific. And I mean, again, here's another one where... We have we have transgressed beyond PG-13 at this point. This The Hook Mountain Massacre should probably, deservedly, be a nice solid R. Yeah, um, and there's a little bit of a content warning that this one deals not only just with unpleasant uh, cannibal half-ogres... Oh. But an incestuous family that you know, their it, matron... It, as if there are pleasant, incestuous, cannibal half-ogres. You know, they're... they're <laughs> as if there was wiggle room on that one. No, I there don't isn't. know. Maybe there are. Me, like, maybe they're just charming and they sip tea and, you know what? Well, don't be put off by the fact that I just ate my, my half-brother. You know? Uh, it could be. Could be. D&D has room for everything. But it ain't in this module. No, no, it it definitely goes to a very dark place oh. in a hurry. And 
You want to terrify some player characters. This is the module. And again, this uh, expands the area. Uh, and now the players should be around fourth to sixth level when transpire when this uh, adventure path, part of the adventure path transpires. And of course, they'll go much higher during this mod, maybe eighth level. But the thing is, is that at the end of it all, uh, you provide the player characters with the potential for a uh, Fort Rannick, which is a nicely made castle. And it's important to mention that this is quite intentional. In the arc of these six stories, this is not a random game. Uh, this is giving the players a powerful bolt hole to withdraw to uh, and secure themselves and have time to train and prepare and set aside their belongings, their followers. Uh, they, you know, they've got a base now. They're not just like, oh, I can always go back to my room at the end and hope I can... Get the uh, higher level fighter to train me out in the yard, you know. No, that era ends with them having achieved a level that uh, is appropriate for them to have a place of their own, uh, well defended and fortified. Yeah, and it's kind of implied that, you know, you want to push the players to do this, but of course, um, they're going to do what they want. They may can also give it to the NPCs and the NPCs that they rescue from uh, the. Um, Oh, <laughs> Mama Growls and her incestuous kin. Um, oh, <laughs> after that, uh, um, yeah, they, you know, those rangers, oh. <laughs> the ones that lived. Yeah. Oh boy, witnessing oh. the death and torment of their fellows at the hands of these horrifying ogres. Which basically, they, yeah. Spoiler alert: There's a kind of a leather face guy. In their uh, half ogre, who's yeah, just we're not kidding about that being an homage. Okay, they, they were very clear in spelling out that this is an homage to. It was like, Mama Growl. Uh, could you get any more horrifying than a bed bound half ogress necromancer? Yeah, with I her mean, unholy brood serving her. Uh, you know, there are her arms and legs out in the world. Yeah, she sends them for it to do her bidding. But man, this, um, she's a tough nut to crack and uh, definitely will leave uh, your players scarred for <laughs> months to, or years to come. But giving them Fort Rannick is, is a nice thing. But if they don't want it, again, there's a lot of uh, advice on how to move past this or just let the NPCs have it. And it's a place that they can kind of lair up if they want for a yeah, while. Yeah, where the players are always welcome. You know, now that you've handed this off to some trustworthy people, if you don't want to be burdened with it, uh, here's a place where hey, they owe you one. So if you're in, in Dutch and really got to go back and heal up in a nice, safe location, hey, they got your back. You yeah. Know? And uh, it also expands the scope of the campaign um, as you track down the other members of the ogre clan that come from the mountains that have uh, Hook Mountain. Yeah, and again, once again, we start to see that the ogres are made a little di different than uh, typical D&D ogres. So they put the little spin on them where they're dumb, brutal creatures who enjoy the torment and eating of other smaller races. And that is their culture. That's what they're about. And so they use these cleaving hooks to uh, capture their victims and inflict horrific wounds upon them that they think is delightful. Oh, yeah. Uh, just a, a much more uh, <clears throat> intentionally violent and unpleasant uh, breed of ogre here, uh, as opposed to the 
you know, D&D didn't let them Well, yeah, out. not like ogres were friendly or anything Yeah, they, like they that. were not your pals in regular D&D either, but uh, there was no specific material indicating how inten- intentionally cruel they were. Uh, it was just assumed they'd kill you, drag off your corpse, and eat you. Uh, now, uh, in Pathfinder, you find them, uh, oh no, we don't have to kill you first. <laughs> yeah, and... Me and Lurch... We thought we'd just saw some parts off while they're still fresh. Eat those and keep you in the larder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can watch us eat you. You know, it's just, yeah, it's that bad. <laughs> Boy. Yeah, and um, again, as we say, it goes into the R rating. Of course, you're up as a DM. You're can you're free to uh, scale back or gauge as much as you want uh, in the content in this. And it, and again, um. The whole part is, is that there's multiple options that the players can engage in. If they don't want to be burdened with a stronghold or uh, tending to powers, hey, that's a cool thing, and uh, you can move on from that. But it definitely opens up to the scope and arms the players for the later parts of the module, and it starts to get very deadly. Um, this starts to scale up rapidly in, in its uh, intensity and the threats that the player characters face. Yeah, before the player characters actually, you know, like eliminate the the principal opponents in the Hook Mountain Massacre, they are generally, one would think, after the previous two modules, of a level that it is a, you know, again they've scaled these well in every case. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll discuss the others in the, the next cast, but they scaled them well, and they did an outstanding job making sure that the potential was there. For a very difficult fight, scalable by the DM in accordance with how many players and of what level they happened to be at that moment. Uh, you know, you can adjust for their relative strength in the 3.5 system. Uh, but it was well thought out. They, they really put the basic elements in place in every module. Uh, to give the players a challenge that was not insurmountable, but they would certainly have to work for it. Yeah, and there are several items that uh, they come to possession of, not just Fort Rannick itself, but other things that can prepare them for the tests ahead. But uh, again, these are kind of two segues where, again, you're not really facing the Rune Lords. There's very little hint about them, but, um, you know, there's just a few accidental things that happen because, well... As you know, later things will transpire. You know, the players will begin to discover that this is kind of all linking together, and a lot of this move, the movement of these ogres, is because there is the giants are stirring in the mountains. Yeah, that and something them. is inciting things into motion. Uh, you know, things that you know everything was content just the way it was for the longest time. There was a kind of balance. You know. The land was content. And now, things are beginning to stir. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is discomfort and, you know, uh, apprehension in the air all the time, everywhere. The other creatures that share the world are getting edgy. And while uh, this was their first outing, and um, Pathfinder would give other uh, good uh, starter areas... This is one of my favorites because it's your first foray, and you remember that well. But um, also, uh, I would compare this very favorably to how they did things in um, Second Darkness. 
and Curse of the Crimson Throne, which we'll cover again maybe later this year. But uh, we're going to do a two-parter on this one because this is a really fun one to analyze all the way through. Well, I mean, in six modules that were put out during the course of a year. Mm -hmm. And again, this, in my opinion, just my opinion, uh, was very smart marketing on their part. Uh, about two months apart is, you know, if you're doing weekly sessions, that's eight games. Uh, typically, if you had a weekly game group, uh, one of these module books would last you, you know, a good month's worth of sessions. So you were not waiting a very long time to continue this saga. And they planned that out quite intentionally. You yeah. know, they wanted to show that we can put product on the table like clockwork. And boom, 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 next installment. And they stayed on task, they stayed focused, and they completed it. Uh, it was a, just a tour de force for them at that time. When you consider all of the different aspects that they were accomplishing with this one series. Yeah, and it really showed the strength not only of um, the small company Paizo was, but also the strength of the third edition game. And that there was still a hunger for third edition products. Now, we pick on fourth edition a lot. And for some people, that is a game that they got started with or the game that they enjoyed. And we're not here to, at oh, least no. I'm not going to uh, yeah, rain I, I, on anybody's parade who enjoyed playing fourth edition or whatever. I'm gushing about this not just because it's 3.5. Uh, I am gushing about it because it is well written. And what you're looking at is the very swift evolution of a small company into a dependable maker of very good gaming product. Uh, and so mm -hmm. when you look at Rise of the Rune Lords, that's what you're witnessing as you read this. You're, you're looking at the rise of the Paizo Lords. <laughs> yeah. You know? And I, I think it's well worth tribute. I'm not discussing this just to poo-poo forth. Uh, my feelings on that are well known. Yes. No point to elaborate. <laughs> this... On the other hand, no matter what system it was written in, this mm -hmm. is good product. Yeah, and to be honest, if you just scratch off the uh, game mechanics, just taking the bare ideas and premise of the adventure itself, you can transfer this to almost any system. Oh, or yeah, any... you could pull this into a you know campaign setting. I mean, uh, if you really if you really want to hurt your players with the Hook Mountain Massacre, and they just happen to be the right level area. You know, you start crunching a few numbers and adjusting systems uh, or settings, and you can put them through that. Oh, yeah. Watch their shocked and terrified faces. <laughs> Good Lord! What's wrong with you? Is everything okay at home, Mike? Yeah, why, well, you why, know. Why would you DM that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was it Horror Weekend on Channel 47? Yeah, you know. <laughs> but all right, uh... <laughs> All right, uh, are we due for like the the next one's like the elf version of I spit upon your grave? Oh boy! Good lord, dude! Uh. <laughs> I hate to see their take on Ilsa She Wolf of the SS. Yeah, that's just man, very rough. Uh, <laughs> okay, today we're playing the Pathfinder version of Death Proof by Quentin Tarantino. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. Okay. Maybe that's a little too much, but it's not that bad. Uh, but the point is, there's a great variety in each of these modules. Uh -huh. It's not all horror, 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 horror. Uh, these last two 
the, the second and third installments were very horror-centric. Yeah, one's more kind of a visceral horror, and the other one was kind of... There's some kind of ghost story, wet box, glove manner, and all that. But uh, uh, you can uh, pick up those modules. Uh, they're, I mean... There is a compilation of the Adventure Path book, uh, the Anniversary Edition. Yes, in a large, single-bound hardback volume. That collects them all. Very attractive. Or if you can find the original ones, uh, which we have both, uh, you can, uh, uh, of course, get involved that way. And, of course, there's always PDFs, too, so uh, you can get them direct from uh, Paizo.com. All right. So, but... Uh, all right, well, we've done a pretty well job of the first three, and we'll pick up the next ones. Yeah, our... very proud to have done it, too. This yeah. this is a topic dear to my heart. Uh, not because, like, I have not DM'd Rise of the Rune Lords. I am not a Pathfinder DM. Uh, I have played as a player in Pathfinder many times, but I have always been impressed by their larger campaign settings. Mm -hmm. When they prepare a full adventure path, uh, they just include a lot of lavish detail. They put so much work into it, and it's so obvious that these are gamers doing this for other gamers, not people like, how can I crank this out? What's the formula? You know, they're not doing the bare minimum here. They do outstanding work, so not ashamed to say it. Yeah, just like, uh, they remind me a lot of Chaosium, with all the handouts and maps and lavish detail that you felt you just weren't, Playing just like a, like a single uh, slip-back module, you were playing a large, well-thought-out rendition that gave you m many opportunities to immerse your players, not only in what is happening, but in the world in which the campaign progresses. Yeah, right. you get a very strong sense that there is lots going on out there just out of your periphery, uh, which very refreshing. You know, not, right. this is not micro-material, it's right. good macro but all, all right. right, with that. All right, we're going to wind it up and uh, put it away. And with that, uh, any uh, questions, comments, or concerns, because you probably should have many, especially after our rendition of Hook Mountain Massacre. Oh. Uh, Still shivering. You can get a hold of us on our Facebook page at the Dice Screaming on Facebook. And as well, you can get a hold of us at Twitter at the usual haunts of Death Hand Gaming and Magi Fox. Yeah. And uh, we'll just uh, you know, talk to you then. Uh, but also, you can download the Anchor app and send in a voice message for us, and we'll put you on air, and we'll talk about uh, some of the comments and questions you brought up. But until next time, may, may the, the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. Mm -hmm.